0: And I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 18 as we continue our series looking at uh, Paul's first missionary journey and considering the theme of proclaiming the gospel. And so this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 14, and uh, we'll look at verses eight to eighteen. If you have, uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page nine twenty three. Nine twenty three. So I'll begin reading for us in verse eight and read through to verse eighteen. This is God's word. Now at Lystra there was a man stirring. I'm sorry. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people, from offering sacrifices to them. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a blessing it is to sing and to be together this morning and hear Your Word read and preached and to gather in the name of Christ and to worship You. Father, we pray now that as we turn to Your Word that You would give us insight and wisdom into Your Word, that You would lead us by Your Spirit into all truth, And we pray, Father, that we would not only hear Your Word, but that, Lord, our hearts would be moved to worship You and to follow You and to obey You. May You grant now, by the preaching of Your Word, that our hearts would believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and that we would follow Him in full obedience. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, David Foster Wallace was a Uh, well-known American novelist who died in 2008 and some believe that his commencement speech to Kenyon College in 2005 was one of the greatest commencement speeches ever written. Uh, Wallace was not a Christian but in his famous commencement speech he powerfully challenged our natural tendency to be selfish And to miss the real meaning and significance of life and relationships. At one point in his speech, Wallace addresses the topic of worship. And this is what he had to say. Quote, Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. End of quote. Very insightful. From someone who's not a Christian. In fact, in this excerpt, Wallace powerfully articulates a profound Christian truth, namely that we are all worshipers. We have been created to worship and therefore, whether consciously or unconsciously, we all worship. And this is the great task of the Christian missionary. It's actually right here in our text. If you look there in chapter 14, verse 15, you see the key to understanding our passage. Paul declares to the people of Lystra, We bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. This is the work of a Christian missionary. To call others to turn, to forsake the worship of false gods, And to worship the one true and living God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And not only is this the call of Christian missionaries, this is in fact the call and the work of all Christians. As we evangelize and disciple our children and our co-workers and our friends and those who we come in contact with along the way. I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Missionary's Message and Life is a Call to Worship the Living God. And so I want us to consider, as we look at these verses this morning, how Paul and Barnabas preached and ministered to produce worshipers in Lystra. In doing so, I want us to look at our passage in four parts. Worship solicited. Secondly, worship distorted. Third, worship redirected, and then fourth, worship explained. So worship solicited, distorted, redirected, and explained. Look there in verses 8 through 10 and we see worship solicited. Verse 8 we read, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Now Acts chapters 13 and 14 are a record of Paul's first missionary journey, and so far we have followed Paul and Barnabas in their travels to the island of Cyprus, and then to Antioch and Pisidia, and then to Iconium, and now to Lystra. Lystra was actually located about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. And immediately here in Lystra, we are introduced to this man who is crippled. F.F. Bruce actually points out that Luke uses repetition here in verse 8 to stress this man's desperate and incurable condition. Look at there in verse 8 and you see it. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, he was crippled from birth and had never walked. Do you see how he repeats it three times? He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. And Luke records that Paul is speaking to this man. You see that there in verse 9. Now we don't know exactly where Paul was speaking to this man. We know that Paul and Barnabas, they're Normal custom was when they they came to a city, they would first go to the local synagogue and they would speak there to the Jews who were gathered. But here in this text, unlike their time in Cyprus or in Antioch or in Iconium, there's no mention in Lystra of a synagogue. We know that Lystra was a Gentile city, it was a pagan city, and so it may be that there was no synagogue in Lystra. Nevertheless, we see here that Paul is speaking. And when Luke records that Paul is speaking, it implies that Paul is teaching, that he's preaching the good news of Jesus. This makes all the more sense if we continue on in verse 9 and read. We see there, Luke records, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. Now You see, if Paul here was just droning on about the weather, or he was talking about the local architecture, then it would be difficult for Paul to discern that this man had faith, right? But if Paul was sharing and teaching and preaching about the Lord Jesus, then the rest of verse 9 makes sense. He listened to Paul speaking. He listened to Paul speaking about Christ and about the gospel. And Paul looking intently at him, seeing he had faith to be made well. Have you ever experienced anything like this? What Luke describes here in terms of Paul and his ministry to this man. Have you ever been talking to someone or even to a group of people? Talking to them about the Lord. Talking to them about Christ. Talking to them about the gospel. It may be a friend or it may be a child or it may be a group of people. And you just have a sense. You you can't see into people's hearts. None of us are able to do that. But you can see it on their face. You can sense it in their eyes that they understand and they want more. Have you ever experienced that with someone before? I've experienced it a number of times in my life. It's a glorious thing. And here, Paul senses that the Spirit of God is at work in this man. He senses that this man is getting it. Luke records there in verse 9, listening to the man, or he listened, uh, li- uh, this man was listening to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. So what Paul sees in him is that he has faith to be made well. And actually that word there translated made well in the original language is sozo. It means to save. So it could be translated Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be saved. It can also be translated to be healed. And some translations opt for that translation. I think the ESV is wise here and that it translates sozo to be made well. It takes the more broader translation, which seems to have the implication that it could be understood that this man had faith to be made well physically or spiritually. And I think that's what Luke is implying. This man was hearing the gospel. This is what I believe is happening here. This man is hearing the gospel. He's hearing Paul teach about Christ. And his faith is welling up within his heart. He's believing this message spiritually. He's understanding who Christ is. He's hearing that Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. And that he was raised as confirmation that he is in fact the Son of God. And this man is beginning to believe this message. And Paul senses it. He discerns it. That he has faith to trust in the Lord Jesus. And having faith to trust in Him spiritually, Paul believes he has the faith to be healed physically. And so this miracle, this miracle that then takes place as Paul speaks to him with a loud voice and says, stand up right on your feet. And the man springs up and he begins to walk. This miracle is intended to bear witness to the authenticity, to the truth of the gospel that Paul preaches, and to the authority and to the power of the resurrected Christ. In this way, Paul's message here and the accompanying miracle that comes with the message is an invitation, it's a solicitation, for this man and for the larger city of Lystra to worship the one true and living God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice secondly though, that worship is distorted. So first of all, worship is solicited through this message, through this miracle. But then secondly, we see worship distorted. Look there in verses 11-13. through 13. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So, as I mentioned earlier, verses 8-10 to The healing of this man, the proclamation of the gospel, is an invitation to worship. And notice in verse 11, the crowds do, in fact, worship. As I mentioned in our introduction this morning, as Wallace observed in his commencement address to Kenyon College, everyone worships. We are all worshipers. And here we see that in response to this message, in response to this miracle, the people of the city of Lystra worship. They lift up their voices. The gods have come down in the likeness of men. And it was not just your kind of average, run-of-the-mill, common folks in the street who worship. Who, you know, didn't have good knowledge or education about the gods and about spirituality. Notice in verse 13, the priest of Zeus, who was likely the most authoritative and revered religious authority and leader in the city. He starts to gather oxen, places garlands on them. He's ready to sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul And to worship them. At this point, almost every commentator points out. That a Roman classic written by the Latin poet Ovid. Must have played a significant role in the response of the citizens of Lystra to Paul and Barnabas. Let me me explain this to you. It really, I think, provides a lot of insight into what's happening here. The work that Ovid wrote is entitled Metamorphoses. Metamorphoses. And Metamorphoses is a collection of mythical writings that describe humans changing or transforming into something else. And in one of the accounts in Metamorphoses, it claims that the gods of Zeus and Hermes actually came and visited a valley in Lystra. And when they came to visit this valley in Lystra, none of the citizens would allow them into their home. So they went from one home to another home to another home. They were looking for someone to stay, somewhere to stay, and no one would take them into their home. But there was this poor elderly couple, Philemon and Bossus, who received Zeus and Hermes into their home, and they stayed the night. And the next day, Zeus and Hermes and Philemon and Bossus make their way up to a mountain. And they look back over the city. And when they look back over the city, Philemon and Bossus realize that Zeus and Hermes has sent a flood upon the city and destroyed the entire city, This city that was inhospitable to them. But they showed mercy to Philemon and Bossus by transferring their lowly home into a temple. So do you see what's happening here? When Paul heals the crippled man in Lystra the citizens of Lystra conclude that Zeus and Hermes has come to visit them again. And this time, they are determined to get it right. This time, they will not only welcome the gods, they will worship them. Now last week, if you remember, we were in the city of Iconium with Paul and Barnabas. And in the city of Iconium, we saw that there were signs and wonders being done there as well. And there were folks in Iconium who received this and they believed in the Lord Jesus. But there were others who rejected it, even though signs and wonders were performed in their midst. And here in Lystra, we see a different but similar dynamic. In Iconium, they rejected Paul and Barnabas. They rejected their miracles. They rejected their signs and wonders. Many of them did. But here what we see happening in Lystra is that they joyfully received the signs and wonders, right? And Iconium many of them rejected them. Here in Lystra they're all they're welcoming them. They received them. But they misinterpret them. They draw the wrong conclusions from them. And what we ha- see happening here in Lystra is a classic case of what is known as syncretism. Have you ever heard that word before? A syncretism is the combining or blending of different religious beliefs and practices together. Oftentimes, the religious beliefs and practices, they're in contradiction to one another. They bring them together. And that's what we have here. So instead of responding to this miraculous healing of the crippled man by believing in the Lord Jesus and submitting to Him as Lord... What the citizens of Lystra do is they take this healing of the crippled man and they just assimilate it. They assimilate it into their own preconceived ideas about God and about the world and about themselves. They do not, as a result of the miracle, come to the conclusion that Paul and Barnabas are apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and we should follow and obey this Jesus. Rather, They come to the conclusion that Paul and Barnabas must be incarnations of the gods that they already worship. And it's a reminder once again to us that miracles are not the decisive determining factor in whether you or I or someone else comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. We mentioned this last week, right? Some people will say, oh, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just experience a healing, then I would believe, then I would follow Jesus. But now we've seen it in two locations, one after another, where that wasn't the case at all, right? It didn't happen that way in Iconium, and here we see it doesn't take place that way in Lystra. God may use a miraculous deed to cause someone to trust in the Lord Jesus, to confirm their faith, Or someone might use a miraculous deed as an opportunity to simply justify their own preconceived ideas about God and about the world and about themselves. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to not interpret the world by our experiences. Whether miraculous or ordinary. You see, what the people in Lystra here needed was they didn't need some miraculous experience. Even more than, what they, than that, what they needed was an authoritative word to interpret that miraculous experience. They needed an authoritative word from God through His Apostle to interpret that experience and the meaning of that experience. And we so desperately need that as well. They rejected that authoritative word And in response to the healing of the crippled man, they did worship. But their worship was profoundly misguided, misplaced, and distorted. Notice third, worship redirected. Worship redirected. We see it there in verses 14 through 15. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, we should not miss here that the misdirected worship of the citizens of Lystra actually posed a serious threat to the life and ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Some have credited Billy Graham with saying that, quote, the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to be is on stage, end of quote. And what a grave danger it was to Paul and Barnabas that these citizens of Lystra wanted to elevate them and wanted to worship them as gods. Pride is, in fact, the great enemy of the soul. And this is true of Christian leaders who begin to think too highly of themselves and encourage others to think too highly of them. No doubt we should acknowledge that Christian leaders benefit from the love and the affirmation of others, and it's good and right and biblical to encourage those that God has called to lead His church. And at the same time, we recognize, and we've seen this tragedy played out so many times, unfortunately, that there is a real danger in a kind of cult of personality. A celebrity worship, a blind adherence to Christian leaders. It's a threat to the souls of those Christian leaders, and it's a threat to the souls of those who follow them. And what we see in our text here is that Paul resists that temptation. In fact, Paul and Barnabas are grieved, and they're angered by the people's misdirected worship. They tear their garments, which in the Bible is a symbol of grief and righteous indignation. And they cry out, we are also men of like nature with you. You see, the people are praising them and saying, you're like the gods. And they are desperately pleading, no, we are not like the gods. We are just men, broken, fallen, frail men, just like you. I've entitled our message this morning, The Missionary's Message and Life is a Call to Worship the Living God. And here we see that Paul and Barnabas, not only do their, does their message invite the people of Lystra to worship the living God, but their lives, their ministries do as well. Their lives and ministries in this way testify. We are not God. We are men. We are not the Lord. We are servants. We are not the message. We are messengers. We are not the focus of attention. We are not the draw. We are here to point you to the One who deserves all your attention and all your admiration and all your worship and all your wonder. And at a very practical level, pastors and Christian leaders should regularly confess, we are just men like you. Christians in churches should seek out leaders with such a disposition and they should follow them. And what are some practical ways that Christian leaders can emulate this example of humility that we see here with Paul and Barnabas? There's a number of things. One thing that we'll see even as we go further along in our study in Acts is that shared leadership is essential to exhibiting this kind of humility in the context of the church. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for a church to have a plurality of elders, a shared team of pastors who lead the church. A Christian leader should be open to feedback from other leaders and folks in the congregation. They should submit themselves to accountability. They should confess sin to trusted friends and counselors. They should prioritize the preaching and teaching of God's Word so that the primary voice that the church hears week after week after week is not their own, but God's Word, God's voice speaking to them. This is not only true for Christian leaders, it's true for all Christians. It's true for all Christians who desire to share Christ with others and to make an eternal impact in the lives of others. The goal, if we are to disciple and evangelize others, of course, is not to gather people ultimately to ourselves, but to the Lord. And so we must have the attitude of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. And we must find joy in that humility. And so we should communicate in a whole host of ways to those that we evangelize to and those we disciple. I am just a man. I am just a woman like you. And we do this as we point folks ultimately to the Scriptures and not to our own personal opinions, as we humbly acknowledge our own faults and struggles with sin, as we disciple and train and empower others to take on areas of ministry that perhaps before we were responsible for as we relinquish authority and responsibility to others and are delighted for them to lead. My friends, we should not be afraid to lead and to exercise influence where God has given us opportunities. But like Paul and Barnabas here, we should always be careful to lead and extend our influence for the sake of Christ and His kingdom and not for our own. So the disposition of our hearts always remains. We are men just like you. Unworthy servants who serve a great God and have been entrusted with a glorious gospel. Fourth and finally, worship explained. So we see worship solicited. Then it's distorted. That distorted worship is redirected. And then finally we see worship explained in verses 15 to 17. So what we see here is that after Paul and Barnabas rebuff this misdirected worship, Paul launches into a sermon. And what we have here in verses 15 to 17 is kind of a mini-sermon. The theme of the sermon is found in verse 15. I mentioned it earlier. We bring you good news. That is, we bring you gospel. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, it's interesting because in our study of Paul's first missionary journey, we've already seen one of Paul's sermons. In Acts 13, we see the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul, and it was delivered in Antioch of Pisidia in a synagogue to a largely Jewish audience. But here we see Paul's first recorded sermon to a pagan audience. So the citizens of Lystra, unlike those Jews in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, the citizens of Lystra have little to no knowledge of the Bible. And so notice in Paul's instructions here, Paul doesn't begin with Jesus. In fact, Paul goes all the way back to the beginning, right? And Paul begins with the doctrine of God. Who is God? We bring you good news that you should turn from these things to a living God. And then Paul goes on to explain who this God is. And essentially, Paul's little sermon here includes two main points about God. First, God is the creator of all things. And then secondly, God is providentially good to all people. Notice both of these points. You see there in verse 15, God is the creator of all things. He says, you should turn from these vain things to a living God, here it is, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So do you notice what Paul is doing here? Paul is beginning where the Bible begins. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's essentially where the Apostle Paul begins. And someone might respond when you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, "Will prove it. Prove that God exists. Prove that God created the heavens and the earth. But isn't it interesting that when we open the Bible, this book that is all about God, when we open the Bible to the first page of the Bible, there's not this long list of proofs for God. Rather, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God. It's quite a bold claim. And of course, the assumption is that God's existence doesn't have to be proven. He just is, and we know it. So, in Paul's ministry in Lystra, Paul doesn't seek to prove God's existence. Rather, Paul appeals to the innate knowledge that exists in the heart and the mind of every man and every woman that there is, in fact, a God. And no doubt that knowledge might be suppressed, it might be distorted, but it is present. Notice as well, just like Genesis 1-1, Paul not only appeals to this innate knowledge that exists within every one of us, that then Paul goes on to point them to nature. Nature. Paul speaks of the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That is, there is a stamp of divine intelligence upon this marvelous and mysterious universe in which we live. Which screams for the existence of a supreme intelligent being. And so Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. Paul begins here where the Bible itself begins. God exists and you know it. Because He's placed it in your heart. He's placed it in your mind. You sense it. And if you want to know how you know it, look to creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes as Christians, we might feel like we can't talk to others about the Lord because, first of all, we need to discover this slam-dunk, sophisticated argument to prove the existence of God. My friends, let me encourage you this morning. It's not true. Like Moses in Genesis chapter 1, or like Paul in Romans chapter 1, or like Paul here in Acts 14 and Lystra, we can with confidence appeal to the innate sense of God that exists within every man and woman, and then we can point to creation and nature as a compelling, undeniable evidence of His existence. That is a powerful apologetic for the Christian faith. The second point in this little mini-sermon that the Apostle Paul delivers here is that God is providentially good to all people. Notice he goes on to describe this living God as not only the Creator of all things, but he says in verse 16, in past generations He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so it's not just that God is powerful and mighty and that He has created all these glorious things that even extend beyond our comprehension. It's that this God is in fact good. And we know He's good. Because we've seen it. We've witnessed it. Here, Paul appeals to the common experience of God's goodness. And of course, we are inclined at times to ask questions like if there is a God, why do bad things happen? And that's a relevant question, and that's a question that sometimes needs to be taken up and be considered. But at the same time, when you consider that we as humans have afflicted so much pain and sorrow and heartache upon ourselves and upon this world, sometimes the more pertinent question is, why does God allow anything good to happen in this world? And yet there is so much good. The sun and rain and food and water and shelter. And family. And friends. And where does it all come from? And God says, it's a witness. It's a witness that I am here. I am present. And I am good. It is a kindness from my hand. And on this basis, Paul turns to the citizens of Lystra and he says, Consider this great God, whom you know exists even within your own heart and mind. And consider the goodness that He has showered upon you. And turn to this God. Turn to the true and living God. He and only He will satisfy your soul forever. We all worship something. It may be a carved image on a mantle like the Citizens of Lystra here, or it may be your job, or family, or success. We all love and treasure one thing above all other things. It's where our love is, it's where our heart is, it's where our hope lies, and we're willing to sacrifice anything for that one thing. But understand, my friends, all of those things will disappoint. All of those things will come up short. Only this God, the living God, The Creator God, the God who is so good, only He will satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Of course, there are reasons and there are arguments for the existence of God, but even at a deeper level, what Paul is appealing to here is that there is a witness in our hearts that we cannot escape because God put it there. And when you observe the wonder of creation and you experience the myriad of blessings and gifts of this life, there is a voice within you that says, yes, He is. He is alive. He is present and He is real. You may suppress that voice, but you cannot escape it. Paul declares this God to the citizens of Lystra. But even as he is declaring this God to the citizens of Lystra and he is calling them to worship this God, it seems from our text that Paul unfortunately is not able to finish his sermon. This it seems, and based on other sermons that we have that Paul preached, this seems to be the introduction we might say. But notice their response in verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them." We know in the end though that Paul's desire was for these citizens of Lystra that they would respond to this good news, that they would respond to this good news about this great God and His Son, the Lord Jesus, the same way that the pagans in Thessalonica did. There's an interesting parallel here. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, Another pagan city, Gentile city that worshipped false idols, he described his ministry among them in this way. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. You turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. How about you? How will you respond? Will you turn from your sin and worship this God, the one true and living God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ? He is the only God who is worthy of our worship. He is the only God who can satisfy the longings of our heart. And if you're a Christian, understand that this is the gospel. This is the good news that we have been called to share with the world. Will you share it? May we do so. May our words and our lives, may the way we speak and the way we do ministry bear witness to this good news and call others to worship our great God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do worship You this morning as the one true... And living God, we bear witness and testimony that you are the creator of the ends of the earth. And you are the God who has satisfied us with good things. You have poured upon our undeserving head thousands and thousands of blessings. And Lord, we give you praise. We thank you that you have shown us your greatest goodness and mercy in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ who died and was raised from the dead so that we might know You and have life eternal. Father, we do ask that as we observe the example of Paul and Barnabas here, that both our words and our lives and our ministries would bear witness to Your goodness and would call others to follow You and to worship You. Take Your Word now and apply it to our hearts. Make this a reality for each one of us, we ask. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.